You're listening to the Church of the Redeemer Sermon Podcast. Join us at our 10 a.m. worship gathering in Alcoa, Tennessee. Visit us at churchotr.com for more info and to hear other sermons in this series. And we're going to be in 2 Kings chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. And we're reading in the ESV. If you have that in front of you, go ahead and open it up. And if not, you can just follow along. 2 Kings verse eight, or chapter 8, verses one, verse 1. Now Elisha had said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, Arise and depart with your household and sojourn wherever you can, for the Lord has called for a famine, and it will come upon the land for seven years. And so the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God. She went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines for seven years. And at the end of the seven years, when the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, she went to appeal to the king for her house and her land. And now the king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me all the great things that Elisha has done. And while he was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life appealed to the king for her house and her land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, here is the woman, and here is her son, whom Elisha restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him. And so the king appointed an official for her, saying, Restore all that was hers, together with all the produce of the fields from the day that she left the land until now. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So as many of you know, if you've been coming here for the last couple of years, uh, Tiffany and I, we used to live in Smyrna, Georgia, where we're going to be moving, uh, unfortunately, as has already been mentioned, next month to go back to, to start a new church. And in between living in Smyrna and then living here for the last couple of years, we spent a year in Denver, Colorado, because I was hired by another church to be their church planting resident in the summer of 2020. So to make that transition, I left my job. I'd been on staff with crew for six years. We sold everything that we had, including our house in Smyrna. Uh, we said goodbye to all of our friends, and we followed the Lord out to Denver. Only, uh, as again, I have shared before, but uh, only to be told on what was supposed to be the first day of the residency that uh, we don't want to do this with you anymore, Matt. You aren't worth it to us. Now, just recalling that and saying it out loud here, even before you guys, and as I've been preparing for this morning, I've had to just ask the Lord, like, can I say that? Am I in a place now with him and with them to be able to say that? I can, uh, and I have, but it still hurts my heart just a little bit. In the, in the wake of that day, uh, Tiffany and I were completely lost. This thing and these people that we put our hopes and our dreams into was just completely swept out from under us. And as one really good friend put it, he said, Matt, it it's probably feels a lot like you've been in an emotional car accident. And it's gonna, for anybody who's been in a car accident, you know it takes time to heal. And you know it's going to take time, in this case, to heal emotionally from the whiplash of that accident. Now, it's only a testimony to the Holy Spirit, but miraculously, we did have faith in the midst of all of what was going on out there, that God was at work, but that really didn't make it a lot easier. Every day and every night, we longed for restoration. We longed for what had been lost, this opportunity that we thought was ours. We longed for it to be restored. And yet somehow, amazingly, fast forward a couple of years, and in two weeks, on June 11th, we have an opportunity to testify to God's goodness in our lives. 
for these last two years as we've been with you here in East Tennessee. Not to say goodbye. Uh, I'll actually be back in September. Uh, Actually, I'll be back on June 25th, and then I'll be back again in September. So it's not to say goodbye. It really is just to say, see you later. But nonetheless, we have an opportunity to testify to God's goodness in our lives. And so restoration, this idea of things that have been lost being restored, and testimony have been two words or ideas that God has embedded very deeply in our lives as we've been here with you for the last couple of years. And this morning, we're going to see that that's actually true of the Shunammite. And it's true of Elisha as well, and and those are our two points, restoration and testimony. And I'll unpack those a little bit in a second. But our first point is restoration. So as we read our text, or as you have it before you right now, where do you see, where do we see restoration in the text? Well, if you're reading the ESV, uh, as I did, then you see the word restore, it's used five times. And it's used, in every instance, it's used with reference to the Shunammite woman, Uh, The first four times, it's used actually as her identity. She is the woman whose son, Elisha, had restored to life. And then the fifth time, it's the king actually ordering an official of his to restore all that was hers. But is that the only restoration that's going on in this passage? Well, let's take a look at the context. So we know this Shunammite woman and her son from four weeks ago, uh, as God would have it, the last time that I actually preached in 2 Kings chapter 4. When we first met her, she was a wealthy woman, a wealthy wife of an older husband. Her husband was so old, in fact, that the text was very clear and purposeful to say, like, hey, he was pretty old, trying to make the point there that she was in a fragile place. Uh, just having a husband and not having a child. So she was a wealthy wife who didn't have a child, and she was married to an older man. She showed kindness to Elisha. Again, this is all back in 2 Kings 4. She showed kindness to Elisha by asking her husband to build a room for Elisha above their house for him to stay in as he would travel between uh, one location and then Mount Carmel. So Shunem was in between uh, Mount Carmel and then this other location that he was going to. And so Elisha, he wanted to return the kindness, and as she didn't have any children, he blessed her and opened up her womb and allowed her to conceive a son, and that was significant, especially in that day and age, because the son was able to be the heir of her older husband's estate whenever he passed away. But again, if you were here a few weeks ago, you know that her son, probably around the time that he was between the ages of four and seven years old, he was out in the field with his father, and he got sick. And we don't know what exactly happened with him, but within just a couple of hours, by noon that day, he died in his mother's arms. And she quickly ran and got Elisha, and I mean, I say quickly, but it was still probably a three-day or four-day journey back to get there and to get back. But she ran and got Elisha, and he miraculously restored her son to life. And now this morning, as we read in chapter 8, we see that it's, it's likely that her older husband has now passed away because we don't see him anywhere in the text. And so she's not just a wealthy wife, but she's, she's a widow, a wealthy widow because she has a son who has inherited his father's estate. But though wealthy, and though she has a son, her life is still pretty fragile. And we see Elisha, he continues to show her kindness. He continues to care for her even after her husband has passed, and he warns her of an upcoming famine, and he encourages her to leave Israel for uh, the famine was coming, and she needed to be gone for seven years just to sustain herself and to sustain her son. 
And then, so that's the Shunammite woman or the Shunammite widow. We also know Elisha, right? He's the man of God, the man of God in all of Israel who has received a double portion of Elijah's spirit. And he's performed twice as many miracles as Elijah. He didn't just uh, raise the Shunammite son from the dead. Elijah had done something similar to that back in 1 Kings. But he actually, again, we already saw, gave her, blessed her with the ability to conceive. So he didn't just restore life. He also helped to create life. However, we also saw last week that for a short period of time, Elisha was publicly disgraced by the king, and he was hunted down by the king's officials because the king blamed the famine on Elisha, and he used him, as Dave said, as a scapegoat. Well, in order for something to be restored, it must be lost, and we can lose a lot more than just our material goods. Now we see here that the widow, she had lost, as she goes to appeal to the king, she had lost everything she owned. And as a result of that, she also lost her social status, her social standing within Israel. So she didn't just lose her material goods, but with her material goods, she lost her social status. And then for a short period of time, Elisha, he didn't just almost lose his life, but as a prophet who was being hunted down by the king, he also lost relationships and he lost influence. Although for a short period of time, if Somebody doesn't want to associate with a a prophet who's got a bounty on his head, do they? But here we saw in chapter 8 that the Shunammite woman's possessions and her social honor are restored by the king. And we see the king has restored Elisha as well. Because this is the same king that wanted to kill him, he's now actually honoring Elisha by he's having Elisha's servant Gehazi share stories about him in the royal court. And it's not just sharing stories in the royal court, but we believe that this was actually in the midst of a party that the king was hosting that had a lot of honored guests and a lot of Israel's elite there with them. And so the Shunammite woman, she experienced social and material restoration, and Elisha here experienced political and social restoration as well. And so what they had once lost has now been restored. Well, restoration resonates with us today as well, doesn't it? Material loss, social loss, political loss, those things pervade the world. They pervade our lives and our hearts. And to make things even more complicated, they are often intertwined. If you lose one, oftentimes you're going to lose another too. In America, we hear often that we want the prosperity of the 50s and 60s when really anything seems possible, even going to the moon. And doggone it, we did it. We want that back. We also want the political integrity of the 50s and 60s when politicians and political families were heroes. You just think about the Kennedys as an example. And while the internet overall, I would say, is a net, pun intended, positive for our lives, there is likely a part of each of us that wants peace of life that we experienced. If you think about the 80s, if you were alive in the 80s, I was. Anybody else here? Peace of life before the internet, when we didn't hear about every major catastrophe or every major expression of human sin in real time. And the irony, of course, of all these longings is that before the internet, all these things were happening anyways, we just didn't hear about it. And the 50s and 60s were only prosperous for certain demographics of society. And of course, our political leaders back then, if you think about the Kennedys in particular, uh, were very flawed themselves as well. And yet we still long for these things to be restored. How about us? How about when, if you have lost a job, how about when you lost your job? You know, when I lost my job in Denver, Tiffany and I, we didn't just lose a source of income. We lost reputation as well. Uh, For a while, uh, anytime that I would talk to somebody who was in church leadership, I was treated with white gloves. 
I was treated like I was damaged goods because they needed to hear the story before they would decide whether or not they could embrace me. We also lost our dreams of living near my family in Denver, and we lost ministry partners because of that situation as well. There were people who had partnered with me on staff with crew for six years who decided, oh, wow, that happened? I didn't know that was a part of your story. I didn't know that was a part of your journey, and I don't want to be associated with somebody who has that in their past. For anyone here who has lost a job, you know as well that once that happens, getting the next job, especially in the same industry, is incredibly difficult. It's even more difficult because you're not on a level playing field anymore, are you? No, instead you're fighting an uphill battle. And oftentimes when you're fighting that uphill battle and trying to climb up this hill, it feels like that hill is made of mud. Now, I mentioned losing a reputation. I'm sure that many of your reputations have been damaged at different points too. You know, whether it was at no fault of your own or, or it's because you actually did do something. Maybe you did something unwise or naive or, I mean, let's face it, uh, this is part of my story as well. We just do dumb things every once in a while. And there's consequences for those choices. Right or wrong, just or unjust, in public or in private, all of our reputations have taken hits at different points in our lives. And sadly, I wish I could say otherwise right now, that's going to continue to happen. It will happen again. But when that or any other number of things happen, we all long again for restoration. We long for what has been lost to be restored. And we know God is in the business of restoring his people because we saw him restore here the Shunammite widow and Elisha. But how did he do it? How did he restore them? And that leads us into our second point, which is testimony. And we will see that they were restored by testifying about another. And in this case, testifying about God himself. So the Shunammite woman, she testified about what God had done in her life, and Elisha testified about what God was going to do. So let's see what I mean. Shunammite, she went to appeal to the king for her house and for her land, and this process of going to appeal to the king was actually very normal. That was what was supposed to happen, because vacated property fell underneath the authority of the king. And uh, interestingly, I don't know whether there's intent here with this timeline or not, but the king would sort of manage that for about seven years. And at the end of seven years, he could decide whether or not he wanted to do anything with it or just keep it for himself. And again, she was gone for seven years in the midst of this famine. And at that point, the king gained complete control over it. And so even though uh, her process of going to the king was normal, she, we have to remember that she was a widow, And she had fled Israel, and she had abandoned everything, and she had left it behind. So she was on very thin legal ice here. And it's very likely that nobody would have batted an eye. Nobody would have questioned the king had he just chosen to ignore her, say, no, I'm too busy, send her away. Or had he actually heard her appeal and said, no, you can't have your land back. Sorry, good luck. You've been gone too long. Nobody would have asked about that. So she was on very thin legal ice. And then humanly speaking, I mean, we see in the text that her timing of going to appeal to the king, it could not have been worse. She's going to appeal to him in the midst of a party. And the last thing that's on this king's mind, he's throwing this party after a famine. There's extravagance going on. There's indulgence happening. And the last thing on his mind is probably his judicial responsibilities. You know, when you're throwing a party, how do you usually feel when you get interrupted by somebody asking a work-related question? It's probably a little annoying, and it would have been really easy for him to just get annoyed and to dismiss her as well. And yet, here she is. She has done everything wrong, you could say, and yet she is still given an audience with the king and done so in the midst of a party. So as I've thought about this and reflected on this, I've wondered, what was going through her mind? 
before she rounded the corner and walked into the room before the king. I imagine she'd been thinking about this for a really long time, if not months, years. What am I going to say to the king when I get back to Israel in order to get my house and to get my land back? I've only got one shot. I really need to impress him. You know, I know what I'll do. I'm going to tell him who my husband was so he knows who I am. Again, her husband was wealthy, so there's esteem or prestige in that. And if that doesn't work, then I'm just going to dazzle him with the things that I know or the things that I've experienced in life. I'm going to show this king that I'm a valuable Israelite and that he should want me. He should want to have me back here in Israel. But none of that was going to work in this situation. And our text shows that because she didn't realize it, but she was actually walking into a room that was abuzz with activity. There was so much commotion that was going on. And that activity and all the noise was because of her, actually. And she didn't realize it until it was too late because she gets outed by Gehazi. Gehazi says, My lord, O king, here is the woman, and here is her son whom Elisha restored to life. This is happening in the midst of a party. It's completely chaos around. And I imagine in that moment that everybody in the room stopped what they were doing and paused, and they looked at her and even gasped, I would imagine. I imagine as well that she probably blushed. This is not what she expected And if it was you, I know if it was me, I would have laughed pretty uncomfortably. And yet the text tells us, and when the king asked the woman, she told him. Just very straightforward. She told him. Well, with everyone watching, I imagine that that conversation between her and the king went something like this. Welcome, ma'am. Please excuse the commotion, but Gehazi was just telling us about you. He, He says that your son used to be dead, Um, yes, my lord. Now, are you sure he was dead? I mean, how do you actually know that he was dead? Well, my lord, I was was holding him when he died, and he didn't move for three days after I had gotten back home with Elisha. And and when he did, his body was cold. So I'm pretty sure he was dead. Gehazi, even Gehazi saw him too. Gehazi, you saw him? Are you sure that he was dead? Well, yes, my lord. And yet here he stands. Yes, my lord. Well, what happened? Elisha just, what? Elisha just breathed on him? Yes, my lord. And you, child, what do you remember? Oh, my lord, I only remember that I didn't feel well, and then I woke up a little while later, and I was sneezing a bunch. Well, did you die? Well, my lord, I do not remember. I, I believe that I was dead. Well, I, I don't know what to say. I mean, everybody says that he was dead, and yet here he is. He's alive, clearly. This is incredible. Hey, somebody, send for an official right away. I want this woman's house, and I want her land restored to her. Now, of course, all of this is imaginary, but in this conversation, do you notice what she actually didn't say? She didn't, in this case, embellish the story. She didn't try to use eloquent language either to try to impress the king. And she also didn't minimize what happened, though, either. She just shared the facts, and she essentially said, my son was dead and now my son is alive. Because for her, there was nothing more to say, and there was nothing less to say either. And so rather than trust in herself and her own ingenuity to get her house and to get her land back, she trusted in what the Lord had done for her. She shared her story, which was, in this case, the good news that God had raised her son from the dead. What about Elisha? Well, we saw last week that he was restored because he trusted and gave testimony to what God was going to do, which was to end the severe famine on the very next day. 
Now, can you imagine hearing that prophecy from Elisha at the time? Again, this is a very dire straits for Israel. There are mothers who are eating their children, one of the most evil things that we could possibly imagine. They're in that kind of dire straits, and yet Elisha is saying, within 24 hours, this famine is going to be over. Certainly, we saw the, last week, we saw that the king, he thought it was ludicrous, and I would bet that everybody else thought that Elisha was just trying to save himself, trying to like buy himself an extra 24 hours or something like that so that he could run away and flee. And of course, the irony is that if this prophecy doesn't actually become true, it wouldn't just be the king who wanted Elisha's head. Everybody would want him to be dead, and everybody would have a right to kill him because at that point he would have been a false prophet. And I bet Elisha was tempted at some level to want to run away, just like Elijah had done when Jezebel threatened to come after him back in 1 Kings. But we see that Elisha stays, and he trusted, and God did save him, and he saved everybody else by ending the famine on the next day. So Elisha testified to God's ability and intention to end the famine on the very next day. And in so doing, Elisha was restored. And so the Shunammite and Elisha were restored by testifying about another. She shared the good news about what God had done in her life, and Elisha shared the good news about what God was going to do. Now, what about us? What can we testify about what God has done in our own lives? Well, whether you have always trusted in Jesus as your Savior, or whether you uh, had a bit of more of a what we would call dramatic, although all conversions are dramatic, but conversion later in life, you can testify to how God brought you from death to life. You can also testify to things that he's taught you in the past. Or, you know, if you're talking to a non-Christian in particular, maybe even more helpful to testify about what God is teaching you in this moment. You can also testify to moments that you experienced his love or his presence in a really unique and powerful way. You know, maybe you were on a walk or you were on a hike and you just sensed God's presence in a way that you hadn't, either in a really long time or ever before. You can share that with others, Christians and non-Christians. Or maybe you had a moment of laughter with a really good friend or with one of your children, and you just knew that God was there with you, and he was laughing as well. You can share that with people. You can testify to God's and your experience of God in your life in those ways. We can also testify to what we know God is going to do. For example, we do know that one day God is going to reveal himself to the whole entire world. And yeah, I know it's not really popular to talk about this these days, but we also know that one day Christ is going to judge everybody who has ever lived. But we also know that for those who are in Christ, one day God is going to restore all of us into perfect communion with him and with one another in heaven. So everything that is broken about our bodies, everything broken about our hearts and our minds, it's going to be healed and it's going to be perfected. And it's going to stay like that forever. Can you imagine no more sickness, no more pain, no more tears? We can testify to all of those really beautiful things. And those are things that people want to hear about. Christians and even non-Christians want to hear about those things. Well, to conclude, in our text today, the king, he looks like the hero, right? I mean, he restored the Shunammite woman's house and land, and he restored Elisha by asking Gehazi to tell stories about his exploits in the royal court. But in, well, I guess you'd say in some ways, in our text, if you just kind of take these six verses, he is a hero. But if you were here last week as well, you know that the king needed to be restored too. In chapter 6, he was actually the impotent king who couldn't save Israel from the famine or the war. And so we see him scapegoat responsibility onto Elisha. 
And just one and two chapters later, we see, though, that he's hosting this really extravagant party and he's entertaining his guests. Again, he's got all of Israel's social elite with him. Well, what happened? How did he go from being one king, one version, to another? Well, he was no longer the impotent king who reigned during the famine. He was the powerful king who brought them through the famine. He was popular again because his power had been restored. No, the king is not the real hero in the story. The real hero in the story is the greater king to come, the one that the Shunammite and Elisha ultimately testified about. He's the king of kings, Jesus, who has no need of restoration because he himself is perfect. He's the one whose perfection we trust in. He's the one whose perfection we testify to. And he's the one whose perfection we long to enjoy for eternity to come. Friends, there are things in each of our lives that we wish were restored. And and sadly, some things are in our lives that are never going to be restored. But some things will be restored. Our dream of planting a church in Denver around my family, that's likely never going to happen. But our longing for deep friendships that we thought would happen out there has instead happened here. If not for what had happened out with the church in Denver, we wouldn't have never met you. I wouldn't get to stand here this morning restored in some regards and testify about God has worked in our lives. There would be no June 11th in Tiffany and Mai's life. He's done similar things in your lives as well, and he's going to continue to do those things. So I encourage you to embrace the longings. Embrace the longings for restoration. And as you do, embrace Jesus in the midst of those longings. Because ultimately, a day is going to come when you're not going to long for restoration anymore. It will be your reality for all of eternity because Jesus died for you and Jesus himself was restored to life. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for sending your son Jesus in whose name that we pray and in whose name that we trust. And we thank you that you saw fit to raise him to life. And uh, may that reality and that truth continue just to permeate our lives as we seek to love, to serve, and to honor you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope you can join us next week. God bless and have a great week.